Hello, it's me again. Thanks for once again tuning in to Level Zero Literacy. This week we're going to cover Parasite Eve, a PS1 horror classic. We're going to spoil the game from beginning to end in this episode, and we're going to discuss a lot of sensitive topics that include, but are not limited to, very extreme body horror, violence involving children, sexual assault, as well as many other things. So please use your best judgment before proceeding. Enjoy! Welcome back to Level Zero Literacy. I'm Buck, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Sam and Mason. Hello. Yep. And today we are going to be talking about the cinematic RPG, Parasite Eve. Oh, baby. <laughs> Definitely one of the cinematic games of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Parasite Eve released in 1998 and was produced by Hironobu Sakaguchi and directed by Takashi Takeda who both made significant contributions to the Final Fantasy franchise before this game, and composed by Yoko Shimamura, who I bring up mainly to mention that she composed this the music for Super Mario RPG probably right before starting to work on this game. That game has much better music than this game. <laughs> now, Significantly. I, hold on, I liked the soundtrack of this game, except for the opera. There's only like five songs, though. No, there's more than that. There's like there's like 12 13 but like they play the opera so much. <laughs> that one's like not a banger. I'm just saying Super Mario RPG has <laughs> infinite bangers. <laughs> that is true. This has like six, <laughs> three, maybe four. <laughs> so Parasite Eve's hybrid horror RPG game that's designed to be a sequel to the n- novel of the same name by uh, Hideaki Sena and not to go off on too much of a tangent, but this the book is credited alongside The Ring for revitalizing Japanese horror in the 90s. Wait, really? Yeah. Wow. This book and The Ring are what like kind of brought Japanese horror back. So the book the book is like a major cultural piece. Yeah. I'm I'm very surprised by that based on what you've told me about it. Yeah. <laughs> the book is a major cultural piece. At least it, for 90s horror in Japan. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. In this game he plays Ayabrea. New York City police officer who ends up as the only person able to confront an apocalyptic event that's causing people to spontaneously combust or turn into goo. This game has a pseudo real-time combat system, almost like the Tales of franchise, and as you play the game, Aya learns various powers, either to harm enemies or buff herself via her mitochondria, which are the powerhouse of the cell. The powerhouse of the cell. They evolve 10 times faster than any other part of the human body. That's true. They're like a parasite that learned to work with the nucleus. Okay, so we're going to do this episode a little bit differently. Because this game is very different than any other game we've talked about so far. Yeah, very. so this game is very... A lot of the games we've done so far, the narratives are laid out pretty clearly. Or they have they do very specific character work. But this game is a lot more analytical, as in, you know, a lot of horror games in in general tend to have this quality of you have to analyze what's going on at us, what's going on past a surface level. 
to really get to the meat and bones of what the developers were trying to get at. I think a lot of games that we look at do a lot of work to build robust sort of multi-dimensional characters. And this game isn't really going for good character work. It uses a lot of tropes and a lot of fiction archetypes like the cop, the scientist, that kind of thing in or in service of provoking thought through the events of the game. Mm-hmm. And I do kind of, before we get into the next part of the podcast, I do kind of want to emphasize we're going to be talking about some really fucked up shit yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, this yeah. episode. Uh, not just the content of the game, which is screwed up in one way, but the content of the book is... Uh, there's some real bad stuff in there. I believe it. Also uh, bad, huh? So, um, and I mean, maybe it's obvious due to, like, the concept of horror, like, generally really obnoxious bad things happen in horror media, but this one especially. It's definitely on a scale, though, right? Yeah. You know, the gore, like, just, like, general gore is, like, not the same as, like, horror that's about you know, sexual assault or mm-hmm. things that are much more human yeah. um, in scale. Yeah. Uh, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're going into the sexual assault. When we I'm talk sure about we the are. Book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. That, great. I think that put, I, in the very early like throws of this game where we were getting the flashbacks to the hospital, there was a part of me that felt like that was a part of the story that was going to come up at some point. I knew, I mean, there's definite, sexual themes i thought there might be things in the book about violating like bodily autonomy not necessarily in a sexual way because there's a mad surgeon right so they could perform operations to your body and then there was a lot of separate sexual imagery that specifically had to do with the birth of children you get to see like a mutant baby kind of explode from the the it's it's womb yeah this is it's not really makeshift womb everything i'm going to say makes it sound like i don't know how a baby is born <laughs> but it's different because it's in a cinematic and a fucked up horror game mm-hmm. it's not you see it like burst from the placenta but it's like outside and it's face first and it you know it's in like an egg sack also kind of mm-hmm. so to give readers more information i read the book did a little bit of additional research and played the game. Mason and Sam played the game. So what we're going to do is we're going to have Mason and Sam talk out what they, how they view this story and what they think it's going to say. And I will pop in with anything relevant and provide more information and context with the book. You want to start? You want me to start? Uh, Go ahead after you. Okay. So before I get started, when Mason and I played this game, we did we kind of couch co-opted it. We named Aya Joan. So if I say Joan instead of Aya at any point, that's why. We're sorry. We're, <laughs> we made her a Midwest. We, we mean Aya Brea. We mean Aya Brea, but we're, we might say Joan. Yeah. Joan of Arc. So <laughs> to me, what I got out of this game before the ending was. I felt like this game was a lot about the ethics of scientific exploration and how humanity will inevitably cause its own collapse not through not through I I didn't I never saw it through the lens of the way Maeda talked about it about like humans are the parasites on earth. 
I saw it through more of like a, it's just inevitable that humans desire for creation and understanding will inevitably lead towards their demise. So, you know, we see, we see a lot of this encapsulated in Clamp's character where Clamp has been working tirelessly for years towards a project that he is fully aware will lead to his own demise. And despite knowing exactly what is going to happen to him as a result of researching this, he is still so encapsulated with going through with his research because he believes it is important for the evolution of the world of society, or it is like the next logical step of man. And it's just, it's really interesting to me because it's not really like, it's obvious that clamp is an evil person. He's not played. He's not meant to be played as, you know, a misunderstood character or anything, but he's, he's wholly unempathetic, right? Exactly, and he's he's even antisocial, right? I think there, you know, towards the beginning of this game, the people that kind of warn you as you're going into Clamp's office for the first time, like, yeah, he's like basically a shut in. He never leaves his research office for almost anything unless he absolutely has to. He gets food brought up to him. He basically sleeps in there all the time. So this is a man who's devoted his entire life, his entire time of research. And he's been, the seeds of his deeds have been sowed for years. Like he's been working, you know, he went to a hospital and worked at a hospital specifically so he could take these records and perform experiments on people without their knowledge, essentially. And in, in, the process of you know working towards this hit the the ultimate goal of allowing Eve to create the ultimate being, and so all that to me is really just signifying how much one it's important. Like there are lines in scientific ethics where it's important to control some aspects of experimentation. Because there's no reason for, you know, there's a line where it's like understanding and then you can step past that and you are actively working towards unraveling of a core fabric of society. You know, when you think about like Oppenheimer, when you think about the invention of the atomic bomb, there's a lot, they cross the line of like understanding atomic, you know, concepts fusion explosions whatever and then turned it into a weapon it's kind of a similar to me it's just there's like a parallel there a little bit and then the other side of it just being you know human ingenuity human curiosity will eventually just lead to its own destruction as a result of our curiosity will lead us down roads that we shouldn't necessarily go down and what we find down those roads, we don't walk back from them. We just keep going down until inevitably it's too late for us to turn around and go back. So that to me, that's what this game was trying to get at, was that science 
is a fine line to walk and we need to make sure that we are being careful as humans with you know the experiments we do the things we research and all that so and i want to say the uh, the book does a much better job of kind of making a big point that that is one of the big issues it is addressing uh because uh the reason eve ends up existing as she does in this universe is because of that research yeah uh, you get you get kind of a glimpse into it because maeda tells you about the experimentation that went into the woman in japan but it's never really fully explained out to the player so do you want me to put in what those experience sure yeah okay so the experiments that maeda mentions here are so there's a research scientist focus on cell biology specifically mitochondria and his wife so his wife is possessed by possessed is like the most accurate word here mitochondrial eve her body is trying to fight back though and mitochondrial eve is effectively trying to get rid of the middleman which is this guy's wife her name's kiyomi so Eve starts doing these experiments to see how much she can take over Kiyomi's body. And it's kind of hard for her, but the moments she can do it are when Kiyomi and Toshiaki is the name of the scientist are having sex. Weird. Yeah, it's weird. Um, And so... Eve uses this time to kind of communicate with Toshiaki and put ideas in his head about what's going on with Kiyomi. And Eve also, as she is able to slowly take over Kiyomi's body, she has Kiyomi sign up to be an organ donor. Specifically, This book, I think, was written around the time when there was a big thing going on in Japan about should someone who is declared brain dead be an organ donor? Like, should you take organs from someone who is declared brain dead? Do you know know about what years that might have been? I I have no idea. Uh, This book came out in the 90s. What happens is... Eve starts taking over the body. She forces Kiyomi to sign up to be an organ donor. And while she's doing this, she's setting this up for a few things to happen. She's imprinting into Toshiaki that Kiyomi can effectively live beyond her body being dead. And she's also setting it up so that even if Kiyomi's body dies she can propagate into something else specifically she specifically what ends up happening is she signs her up i don't know if you can actually do this this is the weird thing she signed up specifically to be a kidney donor and so eve one day while kiyomi is driving takes over her body runs her into a pole in the car 
to kind of kill her body, make her brain dead and make it so that the kidneys can be transplanted somewhere else. But she puts the idea in Toshiaki's head, hey, take her liver. I don't know what it is. It's something specific about liver cells that I really don't care about explaining here. Well, so, uh, I mean, that's that's talked a little bit about the game where in the true ending, you learn that an entire copy of Maya, who is the sister of the protagonist, has been created out of a culture of liver cells that Clamp has been working on. Yeah, her uh, Maya's liver cells, actually. Yeah. And I um, believe the reason that they probably picked the liver cells is because the liver has the highest regenerative rate of any of the body's organs. I want to say it's either like it's either the highest or one of the highest because I believe it's. I, I know I've read studies that like your liver can completely rebuild itself if there's only like thirty percent of it left or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's something like that, and so. Toshiyashi takes the liver, and that's actually what ends up becoming Eve One. Like Eve One, Eve One is the original creation of Eve that you don't experience in this book or not in the game. The kidney ends up going to someone who's going who's very important for this game, and we'll get to that later. The liver cells creating Eve is something that is consistent. Like Eve has managed to do this to Toshiaki and to. Clemp, uh, and so so effectively, Eve is the like cat. Eve is the nuclear bomb here, right? Eve is what if we, w- you know, this scientist taking this wild idea, crazy idea of taking his dead wife's liver, and he sees this liver as his wife living and he's experimenting on it and he's like all oh, these mitochondria are so powerful this is so great i can grow these and what he ends up growing is an eldritch horror yeah. uh. <laughs> absolutely <sighs> mason you want to so when i played this game it made me think a lot back to my childhood which was the late 90s early 2000s right now, in the post-World War II era, from like the 40s to the 70s, we made a lot of scientific... Humanity made a ton of scientific advancements. Humanity like learned a ton of stuff. And then throughout the 80s and 90s, it was making its way into public consciousness. It was making its way into the science books, right? Now, I don't know exactly when Watson and Crick figured out the shape of DNA. When was that? Do you know? It was it was seventies ish. Yeah, that I sounds think. right. Uh, it, it does sound right. Don't quote any of yeah, us. Yeah, don't quote. I, I used to teach science, but I don't. But yeah, like things things that previously were unknown are just being researched. Start making their way into public consciousness and start to inform a lot of people about you know where we came from, what our place on the Earth is, what our place in the universe is. And to a lot of people, it was tremendously scary. To a lot of religious people, it was it was obviously enough to like flip their ideology on its head. To a lot of people who had thought they had a very good idea of what the world was, a very solid worldview, it could be very upending. And I think this is a to me this read like a meditation 
on all of the various ways that science could be like pretty horrific um, in that sort of post World War II advancement era, right? Like we have all the all the hits from that time. A doctor can shoot a laser in your eye and fix it, or take an organ out of someone and put it into you. Like, does that make you? Uh, does that make them a little part of you? Um, these these collections of bones that we found underground were now starting to be given life by the research we were doing on them, which, like, as a sort of visual metaphor. In the game, right, the dinosaurs literally will come to life, right? We, we learn so much about these, these things that now we can make definitive statements about when they lived, and it's just like an imperceptibly long time ago. These ways of thinking that had been in our brains since, you know, maybe the Middle Ages were dying off. And again, to go back to visual metaphor, the first thing you see in the game is a play that seems to take place in the Middle Ages where all the characters die off, right? There was like this very quick progression of human knowledge and it created this this zeitgeist of fear of science. And to me, this game like brought to life all the different things that people found most scary, right? And... You know, I could go on and on. Uh, we had new weapons that could be concealed and kill people incredibly quickly, finding their ways into like not it's not just like in the wild west anymore. You can find that on like some east coast metropolis, right? And you know, we have the the cops commenting on con- gun control and things like that. That that was a lot of what I read into the events of the game. That was what, and I know I had read somewhere online that the game was developed in California with a partnership with Squaresoft, right? Yeah, this is the first Square game where that had like a ma- major collaboration with the West. And it seemed very very American in a lot of the portrayals and attitudes and themes I saw in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it sort of harkened back to a lot of things I remember about my childhood like the remnants of these sort of um, cultural shifts that I, you know, people were still talking about when I was a kid in like the early 2000s, right? And, you know, to some people it's not, um, com- the fears aren't completely assuaged and now we have some people who were born completely after this and it's all just very normal to them. But back in the time that this game takes place in, this was all fresh and new and scary, so that's what that's what it felt like to me. Yeah. Yeah, and I I'm kind of inclined to agree with that. The the book in particular it goes super in depth to a lot of the scientific process of like cells and reproduction and research like cells, cell reproduction, research, those kinds of things and a lot of it a lot of it tries the book itself, you know, this game, a lot of the, like, horror is from the grotesque body horror. I just, funny story, when I was, like, seven or eight, and I'm say I'm guessing because it has to be realistic, this game came out in 98, I was probably seven years old, I was visiting family, and my uncle 
who played video games, who really got me into video games, uh, he was playing this game and I was a little kid. And I was like, I want to watch. And he's like, you probably shouldn't. I was like, I'm going to watch anyway. He's like, okay. And <laughs> he just started the game and the rat cutscene oh, happened. The very, the very first <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> Where, and if you haven't seen this, I personally recommend playing this game if only to see what a year of difference in the Final Fantasy VII engine is. Yeah, oh my god. It's it's night and day. Like, Final Fantasy VII was re- released 14 months before this game. And it uses the Final Fantasy VII en- engine. And this game, these cutscenes just look... It's. I didn't realize they were the same engine because of how much better this game looks. Like when I say better, I mean like it still looks like a game from 1998. Yeah. But the cutscene, the CGI, <laughs> yeah, is, for the time. It, yeah, the CGI for the time. Like when you stack it up at two Final Fantasy VII, which maybe has one cutscene. I think that even is close to the level, and that's the the Bugenhagen, um Ori, mm-hmm. and even that, it's like the the level of detail is like not there. These mm-hmm. scenes were like super good. Oh yeah, uh, like that rat. I've had that cutscene ingrained in my brain <laughs> for my whole life, and yeah. there's not there's not, and when I say as many, there's like one scene like that in the book. Everything else about the horror of the book is trying to understand what Eve actually is. It's almost more psychological. Yeah, exactly. The the book is a lot more psychological and, you know, approaches the scientific way a lot more than I think the game manages to like pull out of you. Um I have a I have a, a kind of a hunch that this game was a was much more about what it could show you yeah than what yeah, it could yeah. tell you because they already had a book of stuff that they could tell you mm-hmm. and all you know all the characters are kind of one note and the writing is just very like this gets you to this gets you to this but the cinematics they almost seem like they're out of a different game entirely than the writing because they're so much more imaginative and evocative and there's so much more imagery than there ever is in just the gameplay which almost serves just to be a, a vessel for these cutscenes in in a way. Not it's not like entirely like that. But the cutscenes are like far and away the best attribute of the game. Do you guys agree? I agree. Yeah, I'd say so. A- except for I kind of like the way Daniel's relationship with his son evolves throughout the game. I wish there was more of it. But beyond like watching that happen, yeah, the uh, the cutscenes are like in my opinion easily the best part of the game i i mean i just the character work didn't really grip me because they let a lot of stuff hang and like a lot of stuff is like gesturing towards like ideas and tropes and archetypes that exist in other fiction yeah there's actually just very little dialogue in the game there really is it's really weird to me i think the most dialogue happens between the police chief and daniel and aya one all which the, is, it's all expository and all the cutscenes are just visually, you know, played out. There's no dialogue in any of those. There's no voice acting really. There doesn't there doesn't need to be, right? 
because they're so i mean well there's quote-unquote voice acting and that there's like a baby crying at one point but that's that's the closest or like an opera singer those stupid baby noises will be ingrained in my they're, head it's awful dude because we uh, have how, how many times we had to see that cutscene. that's stupid ultimate being <laughs> but like the all the juice in this game to me was squeezed out of the the cutscenes. they that was like that was the part that gripped me was like you know there's um the there's crocodiles in the sewers of new york uh, and one has become bipedal and is like eight feet tall and coming in, you know, his like mouth is splitting apart and you see the sinew and the muscle and it's like, so you can tell, you know, like someone spent tons of time getting that just right or the, you know, the rat or the, the people like the, you know, there's a scene with like 50 people spontaneously combusting and they're like falling all over each other, trying to run away and they're falling out of the, out of the balcony and stuff. Like just just abject horror, yeah. just conveyed so effectually in the CGI. And I'm not, I'm not sure any other horror game has really pulled something like this. Had really pulled something off like this before this point. Because when did Resident Evil Two come out? Re- Ugh. I don't know. Probably like ninety five, ninety four, ninety five kind of zone. Resident Evil 3 was on the Dreamcast, so that was later. Uh, um, oh my god, why is Remake coming up when I Google? Well, <laughs> 1998, same ni- year. Same year. So like a month, like a few months before this. So it was it was being developed in tandem, yeah, right? They in, had the same... In tandem. And like, RE1 is a scary game, but I don't think it had any image. I don't recall it having any imagery. Well, it was FMV. RE1 was FMV game. This kind of imagery being in a video game, I think was very new at this point. I'm, I'm hoping and saying, uh, please don't yell at me if I'm wrong. I'm, yeah. but I I'm, mean, there's a reason there has to be a reason this game is stuck around as a cult classic, despite being, let's be honest with ourselves, like a pretty middling game quality wise. Yeah. To like not wise. to like maybe a little below par. Yeah. And this, it's, this it probably game... innovated so robustly in that area. This game got a lot of sevens, and like this is when sevens actually meant like a seven. Yeah, like not. pretty, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> hey, it's me popping in for the mid-roll ad. Well, it would be an advertisement if I didn't keep emailing potential advertisers threatening emails. Anyway, I'm just here to remind you to like, comment, subscribe, and share on all of our social media feeds. You can find links to them at linktree slash level zero literacy. I really need this podcast to pop off because I did take a loan against Buck's house. Um, So if you could do that. Anyway, I'll throw you back to the pod. Uh, Yeah, so I'd like to add a little bit of context to the story now. Since we already discussed in the book part the creation of Eve, I'd like to talk about what happens after Eve is made. Double warning on almost any bad thing you can think of. Listeners, use your best judgment before proceeding. I know I told you in the pre-show role, but please, God, just take a deep breath. Think about this. All right. So, Eve is made. And what she ends up doing is she ends up actually taking over the body of one of the students studying under the researcher who made her. And she ends up, she's presenting at a talk and 
well, she she ends up needing to present a talk for like a re- college stuff. She rehearses it really well, but when she goes to do it, Eve takes over and gives a talk about the mitochondria taking over the earth, very similar to what you hear in the game. Sure. They, everybody's really confused. The researcher, Toshiaki, is yelling at her to get out of his student, and she says, okay, I will. And she just starts climbing, this goo starts climbing out of her throat. And comes up and uh, she starts lighting people on fire. Very much like the first scene in the thing. Uh, very funny thing. The student who was taken over survives this whole thing. That's good. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, well, she gets like third degree burns and has to have skin grafted on, but she's, she's, she's alive. Can I, yeah. can I small aside here? Does it, it feels pretty purposeful to me that Eve only overtakes the body of women? Yes, right. So, what yeah. can we talk about? Like, why that is? Do you, do you have any ideas? Or? Eve. So the if she was taking over men. She'd be parasite Adam. Yeah, come on, give me. <laughs> so the, the to give you to give you some context for it, uh, the concept of mitochondrial Eve is it's a real scientific concept where I don't know how much water it holds it came around in the 80s where mitochondrial dna are only passed matrilineally oh okay so so it, it, it's a chromosome thing mm-hmm. so it has to be so eve has to take over women yeah or she can't mm-hmm. pass herself forward yeah. well and it, even in the game it's sort of lightly alluded to because in her first attempt it was the f- the man's mitochondria that fought back and prevented you know this the sperm cells of the man she tried to use to create the ultimate being fought back and was what ultimately destroyed oh it. yeah yeah and, so and that I, is that is that is how this book ends because so by the way the way she got those sperm cells doing a weird eldritch horror sexual assault on the guy well i think i, I like i like the way it happened in the game better than Speaking of which, yeah. the way it happened in the game really speaks to my theme because really new technology Artificial in the sperm. 80s and 90s. Yeah. Artificial insemination. Yeah, in vitro yeah. and fertilization. So uh, it, we kind of jumped around there. So the goo hops out of the student and Toshiaki chases the goo to the lab to try to figure out what was happening, where he was growing Eve. He gets there. He is indeed sexually assaulted. And she takes his sperm to go to the 14-year-old girl who the kidney was transplanted into. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. I won't go into any graphic detail. The ultimate being is born almost instantaneously after being grown in the 14-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah. 14-year-old girl survives this. But, and pretty much the, the thing Sam said happens, uh, happens to the ultimate being in the book. the Because she took the man's sperm and because there are things that could have happened with the mitochondria. So mitochondrial Eve couldn't create the perfect ultimate being with a human sperm. Uh, effectively, Toshiaki ends up actually commanding the ultimate being. He's like, come here, ultimate being. We can we can be friends, and effectively, he and the ultimate being 
fuse fuse and so he Dragon dies style. and the ultimate being also dies because of their fusion interesting um so that 14 year old girl is i and maya's okay yeah so this is alluded to in the events of the game right <laughs> yeah yeah um in, in several places so that 14 year old girl it seems ended up exactly like toshiaki's wife kiyomi her body was taken over by mitochondrial eve eventually and she and maya ended up in a car accident their organs were donated maya's liver was taken by clemp yep and the kidney by melissa yep the kidney by melissa and <laughs> the cornea the cornea the, by, by aya the cornea by aya where aya was you know the person able to, that's why aya is the person able to fight against eve in this situation is for some reason her body focused on cooperation synthesis yeah like sim- symbiosis in ex- instead of like mitochondrial domination and, and that's why I is the protagonist of this story. And the reason they sort of put that concept forward is that her body is trying to synergize with the cells of her sister or something. It's 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 something you don't get to learn unless you do the true ending, quote unquote. But that's kind of how they explain it. Yeah. We did, we did not go for the true ending because it's an enormous chore. And I but I watched it. It's not as cool as the regular ending. Yeah, the the normal ending, the new game ending I thought was much better. The the new the true ending just sounded like a bunch of exposition. Yeah, it was just a bunch of exposition. It was So, <laughs> so I was really curious reading this. Because I like y'all's interpretation, but I have the problem of, I think, Maeda's monologue monologue is what they wanted you to get out of this story. So, me and Mason <laughs> talked about this before we started recording, and he brought up that there's a lot of imagery in this game about climate change and in concept it's like the mitochondria are evolving 10 times faster than everything else so the mitochondria are like humans and the nucleus is like the earth and everyone spontaneously combusting is like the earth overheating so those are all very easy parallels to draw yeah, easy lines well, they're not easy, but yeah. they, they did it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all kind of a stretch. So that imagery is there for sure. And I don't know if it's, I don't want to call it disappointing, but it definitely feels like a cop-out sort of right at the end to take away the player's ability to interpret more openly in favor of a more direct it's just it's the same issue i had at the end of metal gear solid one where i understand that 
there might be some players that don't necessarily get the message. But having a character in your game directly tell the players what your game is about just leaves like a really sour taste in my mouth. And so like what I kind of find interesting in this story, right, is I think the real there there's a real subtext that if you reach really hard to get is that cooperation is a lot more important than antagonism. Sure. Yeah. So cuz like so there's the scene where Maeda is talking to some police officers and one starts speaking to him in Japanese to try to figure out what's going on and then another dude says something racist and gets caught on fire. Uh, yeah, very cool. And very funny. Very cool. I Best cutscene in the game. Awesome. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, and then ultimate, you know, ultimately the way the actual this happens throughout the game and it's like culminated in the final boss fight where Daniel and Maeda are arguing about Maeda handing Maya uh, useless crap, useless crap, which he has done a lot, which he has done a lot in the game. It was, it is not an unfounded fear by Daniel. It's not. But after you fight through a few phases of the ultimate being and it, it seems like there's no end to it, what Maeda was trying to give you this time was bullets with Aya cells in them to help fight against the ultimate being. And Daniel, you know, ultimately deciding that instead of fighting against Maeda, he needs to just trust him. He takes a literal leap of faith out of a helicopter. It, and by the way, if I had to pick a moment, it would be this. this it's a sick cutscene. <laughs> it's such a. It goes so hard. It goes so hard. Daniel takes these bullets that Maeda had made, jumps out of a helicopter, hundreds of feet in the air, hundreds of feet in the air, throws the bullets to Aya. He catches on fire because no one else can fight the ultimate being because of the mitochondrial resonance but causes him to catch on fire and he just lands in the ocean. Naya catches the bullets and you can use Maeda's gun for something useful. And he survives. And he the does. best the best part of this is they didn't make another Daniel model with, with fucked up clothes. <laughs> so he appears in the final cutscene with perfectly a perfectly pristine suit, a tie, and just like normal you know, like he was just on fire for like hit full body on fire for like probably five seconds and, in that cutscene. And then in the ocean. Yeah. And the, yeah. And then fell into the ocean from like 300 feet in the air, which was, would probably be like falling straight into cement. And then he's just like, Hey, I'm here. What's up guys? Where's my son? <laughs> and it, it, and like part of me really wants to take that. The message is like pseudo anti-colonialism, Slash, every, we should be much more focused on cooperating with each other I than don't, I don't think antagonizing it's in... each other. Because, like, Eve, the antagonist of this game, is clearly, like, it's clear that her trying to take advantage of this symbiotic relationship is, like, the bad thing. Yeah, in this story, right? I don't think it's an invalid reading. There's definitely a a supremacy angle. A uh, she she looks upon the other human Eve looks upon the other humans with like contempt, right? I, yeah, I don't think I think that's a perfectly valid conclusion to draw.
I don't think you decide to name your child the ultimate being if you're not a little racist. <laughs> a little racist to humans. <laughs> to all non-evolved humans. Let's uh, let's actually talk about the ultimate being. Because, like, I... What do y'all think they're trying to say with... So, like, in the book, to me, the ultimate being made a little bit more sense. Because... The point of the ultimate being in the book was Eve had Eve viewed herself as like a perfectly fully highly evolved thing, you know, very very race supremacy <laughs> idealism. Yeah. And what her idea behind the ultimate being appeared to be I can't I I am a mitochondria. I don't have everything I particularly need to keep my body stabilized. That's Eve's whole thing in the book is she can't do it herself, so she needs some sperm to make the ultimate being and to have humans birth the ultimate being, which I think is incredibly hilarious to think that you're some advanced life form when you literally can't reproduce without going through human reproduction in like the worst way possible (laughs) if i may so the ultimate being to me was like using the framing device of a video game boss to try and wrap up like what is truly scary about mitochondrial eve Mm. which is the very fast evolution and then the progression from something that is recognizable vaguely into this like unknowable like horrible thing that can't be reasoned with and just wants to wants to eradicate you it reminds me of chaos from the original sonic adventure game reminded me of that too visually definitely visually Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Mm -hmm. well in a little bit a little bit evolutionarily as well I, yeah chaos in the chaos in that game i'm not a big sonic fan he starts he starts as like a <laughs> he little starts as like just sonic kind of like size a, guy yeah humanoid. and he grows into a giant monsoon yeah he with goes a, he goes through forms where he becomes more and more monstrous but like you know the ultimate being when it's birthed is this like it looks like a baby and sounds like a baby not entirely right it, the sound is a little weird and the it's got like wings and stuff and as it progresses through its forms, it changes through these things that like look less and less like a human and more and more like something that wa- that wants to kill you, right? So it grows these like wings that shoot lasers, and then it, it gets this long prehensile stinger tail, and then eventually it's just this amorphous blob with a skull floating in it that can shoot lasers from cells that detach itself from its body but are still part of it it's like when you know it it harkens back to what clamp was talking about in the museum where he's like yeah the mitochondria evolve so like rapidly that you can't even wrap your head around it right they're they're so energetic they're so they progress so quickly that it's scary and then, so they wanted to use like a game mechanic, something that was going to be in their game anyway, to kind of help the player wrap their head around this. That's that's what a that's what I thought about the ultimate being, and I think 
the fight is fine. Either you're buck and you're leveled really well and you liberate and you kind of trivialize it, right? Or you're underleveled like we were and it's really difficult because the ultimate being moves just absurdly fast. So I don't I don't know that it's the best designed or I don't know that they did a good job getting you to the ultimate being at a power level where it feels like an adequate challenge. To kind of address the game design here, I do think it is quite bad to have an unclear point of no return where you can't go grind in a JRPG. I I I I have multiple big issues with that because they don't even make it clear that it's a point of no return when you get triggered into that because it's after you fight Eve, right? Like as soon as you fight Eve, you literally cannot grind anymore. And that's, that's a little bit obnoxious. I think there is, there is a, I mean, they do tell you there is a point of no return. It's not like they don't warn you, but it is, frustrating from an rpg perspective our perspective sam and mine's perspective when we played the game was they're giving us a point of no return for eve but we knew there was another day an entirely Mm, different day in the game not that it would be one contiguous series of events and Mm -hmm. that the the changing of the day would just happen in the middle of that yeah so we were like oh certainly we're gonna have some more time to wrap up stuff if we want to i don't i don't think we would have though i mean eve took us what three tries Eve took us three tries, and the ultimate being took us seven. Yeah. For context for the viewers, Eve took me one try, and the ultimate being humble took brag. me twice. Humble brag. <laughs> Look at this fucking guy. You, fucking, you believe him? Real humble brag. Disgusting. <laughs> what about you, Sam? Ultimate being? Any thoughts? No, I think you kind of wrapped up what I would have said. It's meant to just be a, a very fast evolutionary line of something that is unrecognizably horrific. And I think it plays into all of our theories, right? As far as scientific exploration, denial of scientific evidence and growth and antagonism. Yeah. And it's very, I'm actually glad you brought this up, Mason, because I actually thought the ultimate being boss was stupid. I, 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 I was like, this is a stupid video game boss to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's 98. They got to have a final boss, right? <laughs> the, I think the problem is you do this very interesting, evocative fight with Eve. Yeah. Who you have yeah. been clashing with throughout the entire game. Mm-hmm. And for the game to just kind of throw this, I don't want to say slapdash, because you can tell it was like very clearly thought out and designed, but it doesn't feel. They didn't execute as well as Eve. I think the biggest disappointment to me is that neither of the final bosses you have options to fight in this game really feel fulfilling to the story that they're telling. If the game had ended at Eve, it would have been that would have been huge. If they had wrapped it up after the Eve fight and you like you stopped the birth of the ultimate being and maybe there's like a little bit more beforehand on Eve. I think it even would have been more interesting if on day six, rather than fighting the ultimate being, you have to like clean up all of this refuse around the Statue of Liberty to prevent, you know, the ultimate being coming to fruition. That even that to me, 
because the clean the act of like cleaning up would be would even make more sense with the narrative they're trying to tell of you know this is about like climate change and the danger humanity prevents to itself that would make more sense to me than final boss big final shinra boss i think that they probably so you know how i was saying earlier the game the gameplay seems like a vessel to carry you the cutscenes. I think they probably had the idea for the cutscene of the ultimate being coming out of the placenta and climbing on the boat. And they were like, well, we don't want to scrap this. It's a really good idea for one of these scenes. So we'll just, we'll, we'll make a fight for this. I mean, the, the ultimate being related cutscenes were very good. They were, I, I, I'm not saying they weren't, they were great. Uh, I, the goo man, the goo, the goo man, like creating the shield around like Eve and like Eve making the second form with the, the hands that just hug her pregnant belly and like the placenta, like floating on the water with the baby face. Like you see it like kicking around in there. Like they're, they're really good. It's just the execution on that last bit just kind of falls. The game definitely starts to fall flat post Eve fight. Right. Or maybe even post ultimate being cutscene because you have the ultimate being fight. And then you have Maida's little monologue, like uh, human beings are the real parasites. <laughs> and it's like, Ew. Yeah, I, I, I will say that chase scene after you fight the ultimate being through the ship. I, <laughs> my biggest annoyances with this game were these stupid timed sequences where it's not visually clear what you're supposed to be doing. The first game, the first game over, I got was right after the spider fight on top of the hospital. And it's like, oh no, the plane's about to crash in the hospital. I was like, okay, I'm going to jump into the giant hole that the spider left because clearly that's the most obvious thing to do. And then I was like, I did it once. I was like, all right, I, I'm looking up a guide. And it's like, oh yeah, you have to go find this thing that's off screen and go down that. During, during the chase scene, Sam had like pulled up a guide and he's like, we're not doing the ultimate being fight again. He's like, okay, turn left, go north go through this door don't stop at this so here's something that i think is interesting generationally between us i knew where to go i i think it's because i'm so used to looking at pre-rendered backgrounds i know what to look for for where to go it's like the it's like in a scooby-doo background the book that's the yeah different colors so you're like oh fred's gonna pull that one out and the bookcase is gonna move the issue, the issue for me was that sometimes the things that you'd be looking for wouldn't even be displayed on the screen oh yeah because there because is of a the door. time constraint i feel like the, the the issue is that the punishment doesn't match right the the like the difficulty where like your punishment for failing these things a lot of times is like having to redo an entire boss fight and watch a bunch of cutscenes. <laughs> yeah if the if the cutscenes were skippable, it would be forgivable. Yeah, but they're not. <laughs> they're not. They're not. It's like yeah. oh, I have to do. All, I have to watch all this stuff again. Do this whole fight again just because I missed like a time attack event. That was that was really part of the. That was most of the friction during the ultimate being fight. Is there's a lot of dialogue and cutscenes right before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, I full disclosure, I got through on the second attempt. I was save stating every face. Oh, this <laughs> yeah, guy! This guy! We're playing on console. You have no <laughs> leg to stand <laughs> on. Talking about us. Oh my oh, god! Uh, you believe emulator? Him? I, 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 I uh, emulator. Ass. Emulate NAS over here. Uh, sorry, I, uh, I 
my PlayStation 1 is put away. I do have a PlayStation 2 plugged in because we're playing Metal Gear Solid 2 next. But oh, yeah. I, <laughs> Hell, yeah. I, <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't want to... I, I can't play on real hardware and spend time with my wife at the same time. Yeah, so. that's fair. <laughs> Anybody else have anything prescient? I think you should play this game if you like old era rpg mechanics mm-hmm. otherwise i think you can kind of just watch the the cutscenes, mm-hmm. the story of the game and you'll kind of get the same this is this, this is a game for a specific type of person yeah it's like oh you know older it's games old. and, and or, it's, it's or like cult horror cult horror you'll this is like probably your jam it's not just an older game it is it isn't like a very good older game. Like it's I, not a Final Fantasy seven. Yeah, it's not and like I, I'm saying this as someone who loves this game. I love this game. I really like playing this game. It, it not only is it not for everyone, it is for a smaller section of than not everyone. I think I think if you're in the target <laughs> I think if you're in the target demographic for this game, it's gonna hit so hard though. Mm-hmm. For the for the the person who is a Parasite Eve guy, like it's going to be so good, I think. Because, like, even even as someone who thought the gameplay was like, eh, like, there were a lot of things I found very impressive. Um, I don't I don't want, you know, this is a lot. It's not like Dragon Age level, like, misery. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of stuff that was, like, really cool that they were, you know, like, even, even compared to today's games, a lot of, like, mm-hmm. clearly bra- mm-hmm. groundbreaking type of stuff in here. All right. Well, this has been Parasite Eve. Thanks for listening. Like, comment, subscribe. Next next episode is going to be Metal, <laughs> as Buck alluded to, Metal Gear Solid Two. So if you are following along game wise, that's going to be our next stop. 